0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi 3. If you would like to keep your thumb in that particular uh, hymn, you may. Well, I'll be referencing it a little later in the service, but I do want to mention, if if you do have that open still, um, let me read you that third verse again that Brother Grismore was mentioning. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healings in his wings. That is... Uh, directly from, well, not directly. It's not verbatim, but it is from Malachi 4. But do you notice there, if you're still looking at it, that this? Notice how the the term "son of righteousness" is spelled. You can take a look at that if you'd like. Him 106. How is "son" spelled in that hymn? And we'll be referencing that a little bit later in the service. Malachi 3:16 is where we will begin today. We are finishing. The book of Malachi. It's been a pretty short series, just about two months long. I'm excited that we have the opportunity to finish it today, next week, stepping into our Job book sermon, and that will be exciting as well. Title of the sermon, as you see it there, if you have a a note sheet, is a question Is it, or excuse me, a statement? It's worth it. It's worth it. You know, about a year after my wife and I were married, She and I had the opportunity to spend some time hiking in the Appalachian Mountains down in uh, North Georgia, North Carolina area. We lived in Florida at the time, and so it's about a six and a half, seven hour drive up to those mountains. And this was, of course, before we had children. and, And so we went and we were going to do some hiking in the Appalachian Mountains. Now, we had planned a fairly long trip, a backpacking trip. We would planned to, to hike a fairly steep area of those mountains. There was a particular area that my wife wanted to show me. She wanted me to see it. It's, it's a t- you go beyond a clearing and there's this, there's this clearing in the trees and you can see for miles. And it's supposed to be beautiful and she wanted me to see it. And so we strap on the backpacks and this was, this was our first trip. Uh, that we'd had since we were married. I had just gotten a new backpack and my my hiking boots were fairly new as well, not really well broken in and we were gonna really push it because we started in the afternoon on this day up to the top of this this, to get to this this bald. Uh, That's what they call them when there's a clearing in the trees uh, in the Appalachian Mountains. So we were gonna get to this bald. Well we pushed and like any outdoor sport you expect a little suffering in the name of the game. So there's gonna be a little bit of suffering, there's gonna be a little bit of pain, there's gonna be the twisted ankle, there's gonna be the blisters, there's gonna be the the weight of the pack, there's gonna be the mosquito bites. So that's the name of the game when you're dealing with something outdoorsy. And we knew that, We we were ready to go because we knew that when we reached the top, we had something to look forward to. All the time we were, we were hiking, we were just thinking it's going to be beautiful. We're going to reach the top. We're going to make it. We're going to enjoy the view. It's going to be lovely. And that's, that, that, that was our purpose. You can endure a lot when you have an expected end. Well, such was not our blessing on that day. We did make it to the top, thankfully. We got to the top, and, and that was a, a real blessing in and of itself. However, when we got there, there was a thick blanket of cloud over everything. You could hardly even see to the next mountain peak. As a matter of fact, you could hardly even tell that, were, that we were surrounded by mountains. We were on the top of this ball, and it was white. The, all, if, I can show you some pictures if you want sometime. We've got them at home. It's pretty much just white, near trees and white clouds. And as we got to the top, now neither one of us said this, we had a nice time talking while we hiked, and of course the company was excellent, but as I got to the top, I got to admit, pulling those boots off that were not well broken in and and tending to my blisters and putting on the band-aids and getting the blood, you know, washing the blood out of my socks from where it rubbed those blisters raw, and it wasn't a very good first day for my feet. I have to admit, going through my mind was... This really wasn't worth it. The view that we had at the top really was not worth what I just went through to get here. Now, have you ever had such an experience in your own life? Perhaps in, in this physical realm, maybe uh, a sporting event of your own or a hike of your own or, or maybe it was something else of the sort or maybe a business effort Something that you have put time and effort in, something you have devoted resources to, and in the end, you came to the conclusion that the time, the effort, and the resources that you put into it really wasn't worth what you got out of it. I'm sure we all have experiences like that. It took me a little while to think of one when I was trying to come up with an illustration, but we've all had those, where you get to the end of something and you say, you know, that really wasn't worth it. Maybe it's the end of a roller coaster and you say that 45 seconds really wasn't worth that three hour line that it took to get to that that roller coaster to have that 45 seconds of fun. Whatever it was, there are times where what we put into something doesn't really come back to us. It's not really worth it. You know, it's an unfortunate reality that many churchgoers and many who we would call religious, whatever that term might mean to us, see service to God in the same light They look at the world around them. You look at the world around you, I look at the world around me, and we see prosperity. We see temporal happiness, we see immediate satisfaction, and we come to the conclusion, you know, this life of serving God really isn't worth it. It isn't worth denying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It isn't worth disciplining myself. It isn't worth disciplining my family unto godliness. It isn't worth living a life of separation and distinction from the world. We can come to this point where we say, no, this just doesn't seem worth it. We look around and we say, look at everyone else. This isn't worth it. As we finish the prophecy of Malachi today, we're going to be reminded through Israel's claims that, you know, it's just not worth it, that in fact, serving God is worth every effort and every sacrifice in our lives. So we're going to look at two considerations this morning. Two considerations regarding your service to God in this life. And I'd like you to consider these points with me this morning as you think of the things that you do, the way that you live, the sacrifices you make, the changes that you've made in your lives to conform yourself to the word of God, two considerations of the service to God. First consideration this morning from verses 13 through 18 of Malachi 3, your earthly service to God is always worth it. Your earthly earthly service to God is always worth it. Look with me at Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, God answers them, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord. And that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them. As a man spareth his own son that serveth him, then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Your earthly service to God is always worth it. The final controversy between God and Judah is one that is somewhat similar to the controversy that we saw in Malachi 2.17. We observed that about four weeks ago. In Malachi 2.17, the people had a misconception that the wicked were favored by God because of the material prosperity that the wicked had. Israel saw the material prosperity of the nations around them, and they said, God blesses the wicked more than the righteous. And there was this contention. Now today, in 3.17, 3.13-18, 3, through 18, specifically verse um, 13 and 14, we see Judah speak against God. Stating that they have served God without profit. That their service to him was vain. Empty, that word means. That serving God simply isn't worth the sacrifice that God has asked of them. They looked at the world around them and they said the wicked and the proud, they're the happy ones. They're the ones that are set up. They're the ones that are delivered. They're the ones that are happy. Serving God just isn't worth it. They can do whatever they want. They're not shackled by the ordinances of God. Remember, that's the overarching contention in these past two weeks. The ordinances of God. You now, even as I say that, we might as well be talking about Christians in 2012 AD instead of Jews in 450 BC. We might as well be talking about the thousands and thousands of churched young people who leave the church every year thinking the exact same thing, that serving God simply isn't worth it. They see their friends, they see people around them, and they're watching what they want, and they're doing what they want, and they're wearing what they want, and they're thinking what they want, and they're saying what they want, and they say, they all look so happy. They're so happy. What what am I missing? See, serving God just isn't worth it. The Bible tries to convince us that there's happiness in serving God. Then why does it seem like serving God is nothing but work? Why does it seem like serving God means I can't ever do the things that they're doing? Why does serving God always mean I can't? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one. Serving God is nothing but I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Why all the I can'ts? Seems like serving God is just a method to keep people in line. After all, if you can convince enough people that God is smiling on them for doing what they're told, then you have a group of entirely controlled people, simpletons, simple-minded people. They're all robots. We've heard all these things before. Serving God just isn't worth it. Say, now, pastor, you're starting to make a lot of sense, and that's not good because what you're saying is wrong. I know. Hear me out. Because it's a thought that's gone through the heads of some people in this room. And we ought not duck away from these thoughts. We ought to be able to answer these thoughts. When we begin to think in our minds, serving God isn't worth it, we can't just say, no, 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 it's okay. And dismiss it. Because maybe we can, but can our children do the same? Maybe they can, but can their children do the same? And at some point, it's going to catch up to you. And if you don't have a foundation, if you don't have a reason, if serving God isn't worth it, then we shouldn't be doing it. But the message from Malachi 3 and 4 is serving God is always, always worth it. Serving God is always worth it. The Jews in the time of Malachi were coming across the same problem we see today. And their answer was the same as many church people, religious people, are saying today. They say, How can we make church worth it again? What did the Jews say when they wanted to make their religious system worth it again? Well, they mixed the worship of God with the sinful pleasures of the world so that they could have the best of both worlds. That was the answer that they had. They lived in such a way that they could say and they could feel like they were serving God while living exactly as the world lives and doing exactly what the world does. Thus is the entire controversy of Malachi. God spends the entire book of Malachi condemning the people for their false worship, for their worldliness, to which they continually respond, What do you mean, worldliness? What do you mean we've drifted from you? We're obeying you, God. Remember this checklist? We've gone down that checklist and everything's great. We've done what we're supposed to do. Serving God wasn't worth it until they mixed God with the world and then it's okay because they don't have to sacrifice anything to serve God because they're serving their flesh as well. So, too, we see oftentimes the church's answer to this conundrum of those who feel like serving God isn't worth it. Those who find no pleasure in serving God, the church's answer has been all too often and to our shame to bring worldly pleasures into the church while convincing people that they are at the same time serving God. And thus the church of God as had been the nation of Israel here in Malachi. The church of God has been fleeced. Worship has been compromised. And we as Christians are often hardly even distinguishable from the world within which we live. But serving God is always worth it. And God had a message to the Jews in the day of Malachi. And it is the same message he has for the church today and we will apply it. They that feared the Lord spoke, and he heard them. That's what it says in verse sixteen. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before them excuse me, before him, for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. God describes a scene where Israel says, Serving God's just not worth it. We've seen for weeks now how they reacted to that. They brought in the, the negative or the, the pagan sacrifices. They brought in the negative thoughts. They brought in all of these things from culture. And they brought them into their worship. Because serving God simply wasn't worth it. But what does God describe, describe here in verses 16 through 18? God describes a situation where he looks down upon those who in the midst of Judah's compromise. In the midst of the compromise of all these people continue to fear his name. The remnant within the whole that continued to love God and serve him. And to these men God assured them not, that not only does he see their obedience. Not only does he hearken unto their cries. But he records their obedience in the book of remembrance. That as God looked down upon the righteous in the midst of a wicked people. Looked down upon those who served God in the midst of a compromising people. God said I see you. And I'm writing down your obedience—it's on record. God then says in verse seventeen, "And they shall be mine." And he says they'll be mine in the day that I make up my jewels. That word "jewels" in the Hebrew is literally "in the day that I make up my precious possession." We've seen oftentimes in the New Testament the reality that God's people are His precious. Possession, And so in the day, he says, when I make up my precious possession, in the day that I gather my people, those people will be mine. In the day, in that day, God will find those who have served him. He will make them his own. He will spare them. He will divide them from the unrighteous, divide them from those who do not serve God, and they will be his precious possession. Malachi 3, Israel was saying that serving God simply isn't worth it. God's response was very simple. In fact, serving God is worth it. Ladies and gentlemen, the exhortation that God gives, the exhortation to serve him is not an attempt at manipulation. We are not called to serve God only to end our lives with nothing to show for it. But we do serve in faith. We serve God today trusting that he will faithfully reward us in the life to come. For the service which we give him in this life. And that's what God was promising to the people of Judah in Malachi's day. And we see throughout the New Testament that that's what he has promised to us as well. That he is laying up in store for those who would serve him riches. If we will only see with eyes of faith. And respond. And so... The world is often very happy in their sin, aren't they? But their sin can never satisfy. And the results of that sin will never endure. We look around us and we see a world that will convince you that if you can buy this or do that, you will be happy. But there's no satisfaction in it. And at the end of their life, they will have nothing to show for it. Well, God says to those of you who will serve him. He sees. He knows. And it's being recorded in a book of remembrance. The world will do what they want. They will say what they want. They will think what they want. But when their lives are over, they will stand before God. They will give an account. And that's why serving God is always worth it. Because we will give an account. Now, serving God, as we know, many in this room, I believe probably every man in this room, can testify that there is happiness on this earth for those that serve God. Though I dare say, regardless of the conditions, we will find joy in this life as well. Serving God, though, is not about what we have in this life. It's about what happens in the life to come. And God says here in Malachi 3, serving God is always worth it. Because it's being recorded. God sees. God knows. And God remembers. Our first consideration. Your earthly service to God is always worth it. Our second consideration in Malachi 4. 1 through 6. Your earthly service to God ends in eternal righteousness. It ends in eternal righteousness. As I was hiking in those mountains with my wife. You recall I told you that it was easy to endure the pain. Because we had an expected end. Even though our expected end was uh, slightly tainted, we still had that goal in mind and we knew that when we reached that spot, we could stop for the night. We were done hiking for the day. We could light a fire. We could dry off. We could rest. We could eat dinner. We could enjoy it. We continued in hope, in expectation. We knew that there was an end and we were going toward that end and it kept us going. Well, ladies and gentlemen, your service today, the pain and the difficulties and those things has an expected end. We live this life in hope. We serve in hope. We serve God in hope. We obey the word of God in hope, in expectation of that which is to come. Now, as we step into Malachi 4, I'd like us to take a moment to fit some of the prophetic pieces together from Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. In Malachi 3, 1 through 6, you recall from a couple of weeks ago... God described a time when God's messenger would come and would prepare the way for the Lord. Then the Lord, who was called in Malachi 3, the messenger of the covenant, would suddenly come to his temple. His immediate action in coming from Malachi 3 1 through 6 would be to cleanse his own people, to purify his people, specifically the people of Levi, and then the nation as a whole. God would separate from his people the unbelieving in order that the nation of Israel would finally be in conformity to God's expectations, and then he could bless them as he had promised he would do. In Malachi 4, we see a second judgment mentioned. A judgment that would this time not be upon Judah. Judah was purified in Malachi 3, but this time upon the nations of unbelievers. Look with me in Malachi 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And, that, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. We'll stop there for a moment. In Malachi 4, his coming will bring judgment to those outside of Israel unlike God's appearance to Israel which will be a refining fire and as a fuller soap we talked about those concepts judgment for the purpose of purification the judgment upon the unbelieving people in Judah and the unbelieving nations would be not purification but utter destruction now these prophecies will find their fulfillment in the Lord's second coming Christ's second coming will be preceded as we know from scripture by seven years of terrible tribulation upon this earth. In Jeremiah 30 verse 7. These are called the years of Jacob's trouble. Specifically the second three and a half years of that time. These seven years are designed specifically by God. As chastening against Israel to bring Israel back to God. At the end of those years. Israel will be in a state of utter despair. They will have been sought by the Antichrist to be destroyed by him. They will be the very center of all the earth's conflicts. The nation of Israel will be at the center of tremendous bloodshed. Tremendous war. Tremendous destruction. But at this time, we read in Malachi 3, Christ will return. And he will chasten Israel, judge Israel, separate those who believe from those who do not. And at that time, as God promises in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to 27, and Ezekiel thirty-nine twenty-five, he will purge the nation of Israel of their sin, he will give them a new heart, and he will pour his spirit upon them. This is where we pick up in Malachi 4, 1 through 3. God states in verse 1 that his chastening of Israel will give way to great judgment upon the wicked. God describes his judgment as that of a burning oven. Burning in an oven where there is no escape and there is no protection. But all that do wickedly shall be as stubble. That Hebrew word behind that word stubble is literally chaff. That would be as the, when when the Israelites would thresh their wheat, they would slam their wheat against a threshing floor and then they would toss that wheat in the air and as they tossed that wheat in the air, the heavy wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff would be blown away by the wind. It was nothing. It was refuse. It was worthless. It was blown away. And God says the unrighteous, the proud, the wicked will be as stubble, as chaff. They'll be burned down to nothing but ashes and those ashes will just... Blow away in the wind. This promise in Malachi 4. Served two purposes. As God wrote it to the nation of Israel. The first. It should cause them to fear God. Should return from their rebellion. Repent of their rebellion. And begin to serve God again. But second. And I believe more prominently. It should have encouraged the hearts of those who did serve God. And were faithful to serve God in this life. That their service would not only Bring about the reward that is salvation, but also the reward of healing and of continual service to God in eternity. See, Malachi 4 is not a prophecy of doom, it's a prophecy of hope. Israel has seen their share of condemnation in this book, but God doesn't end the book with condemnation because He doesn't end Israel's history with condemnation, He ends Israel's history with hope. With joy. And so the reminder of the destruction of the wicked in Malachi four one really just serves to paint a strong contrast with verse two. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Notice carefully the designation in Malachi four two son of righteousness s u n not s o n son of righteousness s u n son of righteousness and if you kept your finger in hymn number 106 you would find that as you're singing that song it says hail the heaven born prince of peace hail the s u n son of righteousness hail the sun as in the sun that's in the sky of righteousness. That's what we're singing. The Hebrew allusion here is to a sun, that which emits heat, that which emits light. Oftentimes the Hebrews would designate the rays of the sun as the wings of the sun. They called the sun rays sun wings. And so as the prophet here Gives the word of God and God says that the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The Messiah is seen as a source through which the rays of righteousness pour down upon his people. This righteousness will bring healing. But it will also bring service. Notice verse 3. But ye and ye shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 3 describes the righteous walking upon the ashes of the wicked who were consumed and burned in God's judgment. It's a somewhat graphic illustration, but portrays something very important for God's people. That one day there will be victory. Ladies and gentlemen, we look around us and we say, is serving God worth it? Some of us might have floating through our minds, no, serving God is not worth it. Certainly, service to God takes its toll upon our lives and our families in the sense that we are scorned, perhaps, scoffed, maybe even rejected by family or friends because we have been determined in our hearts to do that which is right before God. Certainly we have been incubated from a great deal of persecution in this nation. But rest assured, those days are ending and our time is coming. Unless God in his mercy calls this nation back to himself. Whether on an individual level or a corporate level, when we are rejected, when we are scorned, when we are persecuted for adhering to the principles of the word of God. When we feel that evil has the upper hand. God had an answer to those that felt that way in the book of Malachi and it was this, remember that there's coming a day when the wicked and the righteous will be separated and the wicked will be judged remember that your earthly service to God ends in righteousness for eternity and so your earthly service to God is worth it because God will judge those who live for themselves But service to God also has a wonderful end. That end is salvation in every sense of the word. Saved from the terrible effects of sin in this life. We will no longer have the pain, the heartbreak, the betrayal, the fear, the loss. We'll be saved from the presence of sin. From the temptation, from the struggle, from the failure of the flesh in our own lives. We'll be saved from a corrupt world full of wicked men. Rest assured, ladies and gentlemen, serving God in this life is worth it. Because serving God in this life paves the way for the eternal blessings of the next. God's final words to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament serve to announce his next great revelation. We're coming to the time of Christmas. Therefore, many of us will be reading an account in Luke. That account in Luke is the account and it begins with Zechariah, a priest who is fulfilling his course as to um, his responsibilities with the Le- Levitical order in Malachi 4 here look with me in verse 4 remember ye the law of Moses my servant which I commanded unto him in Oreb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and there and the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth With a curse. God gave this prophecy that he would send Elijah. Fast forward 400 plus years. For those 400 years, we tend to call it the intertestamental period. 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning. Found specifically in the book of Luke. There has been silence by God. There has been no revelation. There has been no prophet. There has been no speaking by God at all. Till one day, that man named Zacharias, ministering in the temple of God, according to the service of the Levitical order, much has changed in Israel since the time of Malachi. In the time of Malachi, Israel was under the thumb of Persia. Since then, they, Persia had fallen to Greece. Then Greece had split into four kingdoms, and Syria and Egypt had spent hundreds of years fighting back and forth between the nation of Israel. And finally, Rome came and conquered it all. Israel had been through hundreds of years of war. Jerusalem had, had been destroyed at least twice in that time. Tremendous bloodshed. The temple had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes with a pig being sacrificed on the altar of God. The Maccabees had come in, had led a revolt, had cleansed the altar of God once again. Herod had taken that temple and had made it beautiful. And this temple in Jerusalem was gorgeous. Some say possibly even rivaling this temple of Solomon that had fallen at the time of Babylon. All of this had happened and Zechariah is now ministering in the temple of God when the angel Gabriel appears to him and announces that his wife will have a child. That child's name would be John. And notice what Gabriel says in Luke 1, verses 15 to 17. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, which is the the Greek uh, name of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let me read to you Malachi. uh, Chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 again. Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The very last words of revelation that God gave in Malachi were the very first words of revelation that God gave through Gabriel in the New Testament, in the book of Luke. Elijah. God said, He's coming. 450 years. Gabriel says, Elijah's still coming. And he's going to be your son, Zacharias. And you're going to give him the name of John. So we see the definite and inarguable link between God's final revelation in the Old Testament and his first revelation in the New Testament. But as we've talked about in the book of John, the prophecy doesn't end there. When God promised that the Son of Righteousness would come with healing in his wings and that all Israel would thus be gathered and saved, the work was only partially fulfilled through his first coming. Jesus Christ offered it the first time around and his people rejected it. Rather than accepting that gift, Israel killed him. Yet we know from prophecy that there's coming a day when Christ will return again. That's what we've been reading about in Malachi. When Jesus Christ comes the second time for judgment, all those promises made to Israel will be fulfilled. So too, the prophecy of Elijah is not completely fulfilled in John. John Was The man that came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the children. As was prophesied. As Gabriel said he would. And yet there is coming a day. Just as Messiah came in two advents. A dual fulfillment of the prophecy of Messiah. So too we can expect a dual fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah. That he will once again come. In the final days. That God's messenger will come. And will pave the way for Messiah's second coming. When all that the Old Testament prophets declared would be fulfilled. Now as we close the book of Malachi. It's important that we remember the book. Perspective. We've spent many weeks in this book. But we need to remember it's one book. One message. Let's take a moment to step back and understand it. We have learned that God is holy. That a holy God not only expects to be worshipped. But has a definite manner in which he expects to be worshipped. God hates false worship. He hates second place worship. He hates improperly motivated worship. And why? Is it because God is arrogant? No. Is it because God has a superiority complex? No. It's because our God is worthy. Because our God is the God of gods. He is the creator of all that is. And he expects us to give him the honor that is due to his name. This reality should touch every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our worship. It should touch what we do here. It should touch why we do what we do here. It should touch what we fill the service with. It should also touch what we do outside of these walls. Where we go. How we spend our time. Our money. Our abilities. And as we live for God. We can do so with confidence. Malachi 3 and 4 give us prophecies related to the nation of Israel. But as we know from the New Testament. We who are born again through belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Calvary. Are... Shared recipients of the spiritual blessings of Israel. We ought therefore to serve God passionately. To serve God with determination. But always to serve God with expectation. Knowing the blessings that await us. As my wife and I looked over those clouded peaks. On our hike. I limped on my blistered feet. And I thought that was a lot of work just to see a bunch of white clouds. I could have seen a bunch of white clouds from much farther away and been just happy. To be honest, the hike wasn't worth it in the sense of what we ended up seeing. We got to the end and I maybe would have preferred not to go. But when we get to heaven, I guarantee on the authority of God's word, that there will not be one person who gets there and says, serving God wasn't worth it. As a matter of fact, I think it will be quite the opposite. I think every single person in heaven will have tears streaming down their eyes until God wipes them away that will say, why didn't I serve him more? Why didn't I? Why wasn't I willing to Forgo those lusts. Forgo that pride. Forgo those things that called me in this life. Just to serve him more. And I think that's going to be the cry of every man. Woman. Child. When we get to heaven. And so. It's worth it. Let's allow the reality of. The worth Of service to our God. To compel our actions through this week. Let's pray.